So uh, we started a new series last week uh, called Philippians, Life Built on the Gospel. And today we're talking about the advance of the gospel. So God has given us, uh, as a church, he's given us this mission to advance the gospel so that it takes root in our lives and in the lives of other people. And what we're going to look at this morning is that the advance of the gospel doesn't always look the way we would expect it to. It can be very different, in fact. In fact, sometimes the advance of the gospel can look the opposite of what we would expect. So how can this be? Uh, Laura and I, we, we support a number of missionaries, and we get newsletters in the mail and email every month. And so suppose you get a, a newsletter, and in the newsletter from a missionary, it says, we're pleased to report that recent events have led to an incredible advance of the gospel in our field. So if you get that newsletter, what are you going to expect to read about? Well, you're probably going to expect, well, okay, there's, uh, they're planting churches, and they're seeing lots of conversions, and they're seeing people getting baptized, and, and this radical transformation, the community is transformed. And maybe that's true. Maybe, I mean, if you're, if that could absolutely be one of the things that would happen. But what if the letter goes on to actually say, instead of all those things, it said, well, our team leader got arrested, and there are other local missionaries that have selfishly taken over the ministry. You would not think that that represented this advance of the gospel, would you? You would think, what is wrong? Like, has this missionary lost their mind? Well, you would think, like, how exactly is the gospel advancing apart from those metrics that we're used to seeing? Well, that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So um, we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. So let's, let's dig in. We're in Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to start... In verse 12, we're going to read, I want to read through the whole text for today, and then we'll go back through it a verse at a time. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers... Having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way... Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Let's talk about first how the gospel advances when it is proclaimed to new audiences. The gospel advances when it is proclaimed to new audiences. So back to verse 12, we'll read 12 and 13. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. And the word really means that this is contrary to what you might expect. Verse 13, so that it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's not talking about this mass revival breaking out. He's saying that people know why he's there. And in his mind, that... That's sufficient evidence that the gospel is advancing. So he says, what has happened to me? What's, what's, uh, what is he talking about? His, the, the story of the Apostle Paul is told in the book of Acts. So before Paul became a Christian, he was a prominent leader of the Jews who hated Christians and he persecuted the church. That, that's Paul's backstory. 
But then Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, and in this vision, Jesus revealed himself to Paul as the Son of God, who was crucified, who was buried, and who raised from the dead three days later. So almost overnight, the Apostle Paul went from a persecutor of the church to a preacher of the gospel. And Jesus called Paul into a ministry of advancing the gospel. So now, Paul's former colleagues hated him. They were the ones who uh, were the, the Jewish leaders that crucified Jesus, and now they're trying to oppress and uh, silence the Christians. So Paul was one of them, and now he's turned against them, and now he's preaching the gospel that he used to persecute. So they hated Jesus, they hated Christians, they hated Paul, so they had the Roman government arrest Paul. So now you've got the number one Christian theologian and the number one missionary of the ancient world, the Apostle Paul of the early church. He's now locked up in jail and they're being, he's being sent to Rome in a, uh, to prison, shipped off to Rome. Now, the book of Philippians was written from this prison in Rome and it's recorded towards the end of the book of Acts. And this story takes place um, that I'm talking about here. This, this is like right towards the end of the book of Acts. And then the book of Philippians is written in this context. So verse 12, Paul says, all the things that I'm describing to you now that he's in prison, now that he's being shipped off to Rome, now that he's locked up, he's off the field, all of those things have really served to advance the gospel. It's a strange statement. And it sounds strange to our ears because we have a different expectation of what advancing the gospel means than what, the, what they had in the early church. The modern church, we're too focused on results. We're focused on hitting the numbers. We're focused on uh, budgets and, and buildings and that sort of thing. In the modern church, we typically think that advancing the gospel is the exact same thing as our church is growing, right? It's like if the church is growing, ah, the, the gospel is advancing. And if the church isn't growing, oh, the gospel's in retreat. And Paul, like, there's no outcome or results focus here. There's not a single conversion indicated in Paul's statement here. But he's talking about, well, they know that he's in prison for the gospel. And other people are more bold in their proclamation of the gospel. But there isn't any result or outcome. He's talking about what the gospel is doing in the lives of the people that are experiencing this. We often think advancing the gospel is is bigger churches, bigger budgets, more people, more programs. And Paul isn't really bothered by the fact that he can't travel anymore. He can't meet with people. He can't speak to crowds anymore. But for Paul, the gospel is still advancing because he is able to proclaim Christ to a new audience. Now, that's the first one I want to mention here. He's proclaiming Christ to a new audience, and that's the whole imperial guard. Let me tell you a trade secret. Growing a church numerically is not that hard. If that were our goal here, we could do that. Growing a church and getting people to show up to stuff is not that hard. There's a recipe, and if you follow the recipe, then, then you're, typically you'll get the results. Here's, a, here's three, three ingredients in this recipe. You, you start with a charismatic leader. So you need a good public speaker, easy to relate to, with just the right amount of cool. All right. Second, you need a therapeutic ministry. So you, you focus on making people feel good about themselves, and you talk about how God's job is to affirm you. Third ingredient is you need dynamic music. So that's young and beautiful talent, 
We have that here. Uh-huh. <laughs> Young and beautiful talent, Jason Hudson, Exhibit A. <laughs> Performing an emotional and spiritual rock concert. Now, you know, maybe throw in some high-tech audiovisual gear, sprinkle in some classes and groups, boom. You've got the hottest new church in town. And people will show up for that. People will pay money for that, and they'll call it a church. Now, I'm not saying that, that any church that does those things is just wrong in, in every way. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just saying that that's not the same as advancing the gospel. I'm drawing a contrast between all of those things and growing a church with lots of people coming, lots of flash and excitement and pizzazz. That's not the same thing as advancing the gospel. You can have all of those things, a fast-growing church with big budgets and lots of baptisms and not be advancing the gospel. Why? Because sometimes in that environment, you're not attracting people to Jesus and the truth of the gospel and the call to discipleship. You're attracting people to the American folk religion. In a lot of churches, Christianity is a little more than a form of religious therapy. And a lot of churches in the, in the United States are genius at marketing to this crowd. They know there's a market for it. They know their target audience, and they nail it every time. A couple of our staff members uh, went to a conference uh, a few weeks ago. Andy Stanley and a few others. So it was Andy Stanley and Rain Wilson were on the same conference. That's, that's Dwight Schrute from The Office, all right? And they were at this leadership conference. And it wasn't just for churches. It was just for everybody. So... But I was asking them, uh, they are telling me about some of the things that they were hearing at this conference, and one of the pastors that was speaking at this conference um, said something about something along these lines. He said something like, in our industry, our product is over 2,000 years old. And there was not a hint of irony in that statement. He was talking about his industry and his product, meaning that he's relying on marketing techniques and business strategies to market his product. And we're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it works. I mean, Americans were good at marketing. If nothing else, we knew how to sell products. And you can sell a religious product. And it's not the same thing as actually advancing the gospel. The modern church's obsession with rapid growth and visible, trackable results is not advancing the gospel. In fact, the gospel can advance when the numbers shrink, the gospel can advance when your leadership gets locked up in jail. The gospel can advance through setbacks and trials. So we know that the gospel is advancing when the revival that we've been praying for happens down the street. Because it's all about the glory of God. It's all about the name of Christ being proclaimed anywhere and everywhere. All right, second point. The gospel advances when it is proclaimed with new courage and conviction. The gospel advances when it is proclaimed with new courage and conviction. All right, verse 14. Let's look at verse 14. It says this. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is still evidence of the gospel advancing. This is still 
Paul's encouraging the Philippians with, here's what good thing God is doing. Here's how the gospel is advancing. The gospel is advancing because I've been locked up. I'm suffering for Christ, and other people are now stepping up to fill the gap. And they're more bold and confident and fearless in their proclamation of the gospel. So verse 14 here says this. I mean, this is, this is really significant. Verse 14 tells us that the advance of the gospel is marked by conviction and courage and not merely numerical growth. So for Paul, this is a huge win. With Paul off the mission field, other brothers are stepping up. They're stepping into his place. They're more confident, bold, and fearless. Because here's the thing. Whenever Christians suffer for the sake of the gospel, it helps other Christians overcome their fear. It kind of provides this roadmap or template that you can actually get through that. You can actually thrive through that. It helps you to see yourself in another person. It's like they're overcoming it. They're suffering and they're making it through. And I can do that too. It emboldens them. So Paul's suffering for Christ, being imprisoned for the gospel. It inspired them and sharpened them and focused them. His suffering became a test for them where things got real. It's kind of a put up or shut up sort of moment for the others. I mean, naturally, the more we pay for something, the more we value it. And that, that's true of our faith. The more it costs us, the more we value it. When Paul paid a severe price for preaching the gospel, it demonstrated to them the value of the gospel, the worth of Jesus Christ. It showed them how glorious and beautiful he is such that he would suffer in order to proclaim it and to help other people to see it and believe it for themselves. So we become Christians simply by believing the gospel, right? I mean, becoming a Christian is, is as simple as believing the gospel, but we prove that we believe it when we're willing to suffer for it, that's when, that's when we demonstrate that it, this really matters to me. And the more we suffer for the gospel, the more we value it. Because when we suffer, we've got skin in the game. The fear in Paul's day was real. We, we often, I think we have this mindset that one, the early church, you know, that was the real Christians. You know, they were just invincible. You know, they went to the lions. You know, they were burned at the stake. They did all these terrible things. All these terrible things were done to them. But if you, if you notice what Paul is talking about, we're getting kind of a, 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 a view, in, a window into their world. They were, they were afraid before. They may not have been as confident before. They might have been fearful before. And the circumstances are bringing about this change in them. You know, we often think that, you know, they just, well, they don't have the same sort of celebrity Christian culture that we have now. They don't have ministry envy like we have now. It's like, well, we'll get to those verses in a minute. you got people preaching from envy, rivalry, selfish ambition. They're wanting to make a name for themselves. They weren't perfect and neither are we. But whenever we are willing to suffer for the gospel, there are real things that we might fear. And that's normal. That happened to them. And God will work through that in us the same way he worked through that in the, in the early church. So in Paul's day, being thrown in prison for your faith was among the possibilities. Let me read to you. This is a, a, from one of the commentaries. 
It says, Paul draws attention to the animosities and bodily pains, the lies, misrepresentations, and deceitfulness, the miscarriage of justice, the chains which forcibly kept him from traveling for the gospel, the mental turmoil of appealing to Caesar against his own people, the nearness of death and the diminution of hope, the triumph of wickedness and the continued suppression of the truth. He invites us to take these things and look them in the face, for it is these which have resulted, contrary to what their surface appearance might have suggested, in the progress of the gospel. God used those setbacks and trials to produce a good result, to advance the gospel forward. So whenever we value the gospel in this way, we can expect God to do something similar in us, to make us more confident, to make us more bold, to make us more fearless. So suppose that God were to do this in your life. Suppose wherever you are right now, that there is a version of you in the future that will have suffered, and as a result, you're more confident in the gospel, you're more bold with the gospel, more fearless to proclaim the gospel. Let's say God does that in your life. What will it look like? What, what would that look like in your life? Whenever I read the Bible, a lot of times I'll, I've got a bit of an active imagination, and I'm, when I'm reading stories and acts or whatever, I picture these scenes about how things are going down, and uh, I, it just, I, I kind, of, kind of visualize it, you know. And so that I, I imagine these scenes in the ancient world of the New Testament, you know, you've got these dudes in robes, you know, they're standing around on street corners and they're bold and confident and fearless and they're shouting on the street corners, repent and believe the gospel. And it's this dramatic scene. And I sort of kind of read that into my own experience as though it's like, oh, well, that's, I guess uh, that's what it's supposed to be, right? We're supposed to be like loud and, and, and uh, shouting out at people or whatever, but that's just my overactive imagination. Because I don't think it has to be that way at all in reality for us. You know, maybe you have these images in your mind that you're like, there's no way I could ever do that. There's no way I would ever act that way. But this is not a personality type. This is a, a disposition of, of being steadied and rock solid on the truth of the gospel and not afraid of it. It doesn't mean that you're shouting or, or, or making a scene. So more confident doesn't mean more arrogant, as some might think. It just means that you believe it. You believe it's true. You're convinced of it. You're more confident in the Lord. What I'm, it's like being more confident is that your faith is stronger. More bold would mean that you're more daring. You're, you're more willing to speak up. You're more willing to say something. And when you say something, it's not weak or wishy-washy, but, it's, but you're willing to say, this is what I think. I believe this. You know, I, I, I did a quick survey in the book of Acts of just the word bold, boldness, boldly, something like that, just any of those words. And I found 11 different times that disciples were described as boldly speaking the gospel, or they spoke the gospel with boldness. 11 different times. Every time, it was, it was a positive thing. It was always in, uh, an, a, a good thing for them. Maybe more fearless. I mean, you may or may not have fear. I, I don't think it means like having zero fear. I think it means acting without fear. Your fear doesn't need to stop you. So if you have fear, that doesn't need to stop you. We can, I mean, we have the capacity as human beings to do things that we're afraid of. 
The point is this, is like proclaiming Christ confidently, boldly, fearlessly doesn't mean you have to be loud or arrogant or rude. Rather, you can proclaim Christ confidently, boldly, fearlessly, and also be calm and gentle and kind and gracious. So picture this version of yourself in the future, more bold and confident and fearless, and you're having coffee with a friend and you want to share the gospel with them. This is your shot. You've been praying for this, you know, and you're thinking, okay, this is it. I want to talk to them. So what, what in that situation would it look like for you to act this way? Confident, bold, and fearless. Go say you're confident. That means that you would unapologetically tell them what you believe. You're not embarrassed by it. So you could say confidently, God created us for his glory. We've all rebelled against him, myself included. All of us have sinned. And we deserve his judgment. But Jesus died for us. So that when we repent of our sin and believe the gospel... We can be forgiven and we can receive eternal life. That's a confident statement. But that isn't arrogant. That isn't rude. But that is confident. Well, you could be bold. And I think this is, that this is mentioned here because there is a temptation to be timid. You know, Timothy, Paul talked about him being timid. We might be tempted to be timid and not bold. And a timid person speaks as though they don't really believe what they're saying. They say it with, with kind of sheepishly, like, I don't really mean it, but I know I'm supposed to say it, so I want to say it, but I don't really believe it. So let's say that after you say the th first thing confidently, they respond to you. Oh, so you, uh, you believe non-Christians are going to hell, do you? What could you say? Yes, I believe that. I believe that we all deserve hell, myself included. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus was the one man who didn't deserve hell because he was innocent. He's fully God and fully human. He didn't deserve hell, and yet he suffered the pain of hell in our place. The issue isn't how could a loving God send people to hell, but instead how can a just God send anyone to heaven? That's bold. That's direct. That, that's not ashamed of what you believe, but it's, it's not being brash or obnoxious. It's just, this is my, this is, this is my belief. This is what, it, what is true. What about fearless? Like I said, it's natural to be afraid, right? I mean, people knew that. Paul knew that. It's why he encouraged people that they can overcome their fears. So maybe in, in your heart, you're afraid that they'll ask you a question that you can't answer. But what if that happens? We're Christians, right? We believe in being honest. So you say, I don't know. That's a great question. Let's talk about it sometime and I'll, 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 I'll research it. Or I'll bring a friend who can, who can uh, answer that for you. You don't have to be intimidated by, by their question. Maybe you're afraid that they'll reject you. Maybe you're afraid that they'll mock you. Maybe you're afraid that your reputation is going to be damaged and that you won't be as respected as you were before. Maybe you're afraid that you'll be associated with people that you'd rather not be associated with. You'll be kind of lumped in with the kind of Christian that you don't want to be lumped in with. Maybe they're 
maybe the question isn't so much a question that you can't answer, but a question you'd rather not answer. Maybe they have this sort of defeater belief that they, if, they, if they ask you about something that they're going to put you in the hot seat, you'll be put on the defensive and you're going to have to say something that you'd rather not talk about. Not because you don't know what to say, but because you don't want to have to say what you think. That could happen. And, and I'm not saying that it's wrong to be, to kind of be nervous about that. I mean, whenever I'm talking to somebody about the gospel, it's like those things go through my head. You could be afraid. But that doesn't have to determine how we believe and how we speak. We, can, we have the ability to face our fear because the power of the Spirit is at work in us. And that even if we suffer, even if the bad thing that we fear happens, happens, that can actually grow our faith such that we become less fearful. It's, it, I think we all know that that's a true thing, even though it's counterintuitive to say it out loud. It's like facing your fears and having the fearful thing happen to you actually can make you less fearful. That's what Paul said. Hey, my imprisonment has helped these other people become more fearless, less fearful, you know, double negative, whatever. <laughs> But Paul's suffering by the, the thing that Paul might have feared happening to him has helped other people to not be fearful. So all the things that could happen to you, I mean, Jesus had the same things happen to him. And Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. That's in the book of John. So if it does happen, let's say the, the, the fearful thing happens, what then? Well, God can use that to advance the gospel. It might seem in that conversation, if the bad thing happens, maybe it won't. But if that bad thing happens, it might feel in your heart, as oh no, that was a disaster. They asked me all the hard questions, and I said things that, I'm, that I, I think that they're going to hate me for. It's like, if that happens, then you can walk out of that coffee shop thinking, praise Jesus, the gospel advanced. Because it was proclaimed and because it did a work in my own heart, it helped me to overcome things that I was afraid of. I was more bold and confident. And, and in the doing of that, I grow in that area and I can do those things even more. I can become more bold and confident and fearless. The point is this, is that the advance of the gospel is marked by proclaiming Christ. And when you do it more confidently, boldly, fearlessly, all the better. But we're not facing the sort of things at the moment, that Paul faced. I mean, we're not being thrown into prison for our beliefs in this country. But, I mean, we can all say it. Like, we do feel the heat sometimes. You know, we do feel kind of like people may not like us for what we believe. I think, like, Christians, they're being pressured increasingly to kind of keep our, our faith personal and private. It's like, you can believe whatever you want, the comforts of your own home, but otherwise, hey, don't, don't try to apply it. You know, don't try to live it out anywhere else. Just kind of, if you'll notice, like, you know, we, freedom of religion is what, what is our right, you know, First Amendment, but it's actually, free, it's being called now freedom of worship, which kind of limits it to, well, what you do on Sunday morning and what you do in your home, it's all the private sphere. But the, the freedom to exercise our religion is more, it's like, that's where we're feeling some heat, right? For a lot of Christians, they're being pressured to go against their conscience and, it's, it's affecting their work. It could, some people may be afraid of losing their jobs. And the thing is that we can't let our fears determine what we believe 
or how we behave. And this is where verse 14 helps us. Verse 14 helps us here. I want to read it again. Most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. When, other, when another Christian suffers for acting on their convictions, it helps others. It gives others courage to follow their example. So whenever you proclaim Christ with your words and with your life, and when you stand on your convictions, and when you do so with a good conscience for the glory of God, people may get angry with you. People may reject you. It may cost you your reputation. People may think badly of you. It may even cost you job opportunities. But in the words of Kirk Franklin, don't let your fears dictate your faith. It's in a song. I can't remember the song, but look it up. Don't let your fears dictate your faith. That's a great line. God will strengthen you. Don't give up. All right, third point. The gospel advances when it is proclaimed despite bad motivations. The gospel advances when it's proclaimed despite bad motivations. Verse 15. Get this. I mean, this, this could have been written last week. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So evidently, some people were doing ministry for the wrong reasons. They were wanting to make a name for themselves. And you could, just like today, you could, back in the early church, you could make money this way. You could teach people, and people would want to hear what you have to say, and they would pay money to, to hear it. So you have some people who preach the true gospel, but they're doing it with bad motives. They were jealous of Paul. There, were, there was like some territorialism going on. And the thing is, we don't know exactly who these people were or exactly what was motivating them. But we do know that this, this was happening. And Paul says, like, they, these guys are, they have this selfish ambition thing going on. But I think what, what's important to note is that these aren't false teachers, these were legitimate Christian preachers. They're preaching the true gospel, but they're doing it with a bad motive. So in other, in other New Testament letters, whenever a false gospel is in view, Paul spares no words, condemning them, calling them out, um, you know, correcting their theology. And Paul's not doing that here. He's rejoicing in what they're doing. He's just grieved by the fact that they're doing it for a bad reason. So it's, it, I don't think it's likely at all that they were false teachers, but rather that they were teaching the true gospel, proper good theology, but they're doing it with a bad motive. So again, the uh, same commentator I read to you earlier, his name is Alec Moutier, um, he said this. He said, on the one hand, they were apparently faithful gospel preachers committed to declare a selfless, self-sacrificing, unself-seeking Christ a Christ intent upon the eternal good of all, all whom he died to save. But on the other hand, they privately and secretly indulged a different set of values. 
self-seeking, self-regarding, moved by desire to hurt one whom Christ had died to save, referring to Paul. They were double-minded. Their public lives warred with their private lives and their tongues with their thoughts. So Paul's point is this. It's better to proclaim the true gospel of Christ with bad motives than to not proclaim it at all. Again, this is unexpected. I mean, we might, we might expect Paul to say something to the effect of, it's like, well, how dare they? How dare they do this selfish thing and abuse the name of Christ to advance their own ministry? And Paul's like, you know what? If what they're proclaiming is actually the true gospel, the Holy Spirit can work in that. Like in the Old Testament, he spoke through a donkey. So, so if he can do that, then he can, he can do something in the mouths of these false teachers. Or not false teachers. He can do that in the mouths of these guys that are true teachers, but with false motives. That's what I meant. So when people preach the true gospel, God's grace is sufficient to cover their bad motives. I mean, I've been doing this for a number of years, and I've, my motives are, have been mixed at best many times. That's just, a, that's just a reality. I mean, we're sinful human beings. I mean, we're, we're saved by the gospel. We believe the gospel. There's truth in what we believe, and we want to proclaim it. And yet, there are, there are reasons why we might proclaim the gospel, the true gospel, that aren't good. The simple application is don't let your bad motives keep you from telling other people about Jesus. You know, I've shared the gospel before with people because I wanted to impress some leader or because I felt guilty if I didn't do it. You know, the other day, um, my son Isaiah, he went for a walk around our neighborhood and there's this Bible college, this small little Bible college over in our neighborhood, kind of tucked away in the corner called God's Bible College. And so he was just kind of walking around. He's doing Pokemon Go, you know, <laughs> he's looking for Pokemon. Um, so he goes out and he's He's walking around, and some guy comes up to him and starts sharing the gospel with him. And so, you know, he, he listened to him and had a conversation with him, and, you know, he came home and said, hey, some guy just shared the gospel with me. Laura and I looked at each other like, class assignment, you know, <laughs> somebody's in an evangelism class. And they said, all right, go find some teenage-looking kid that's harmless and share the gospel with him to get experience. I don't know if that's the case, but... You know, maybe my cynical side was like, yeah. But I'm like, you know what? Praise God. My son had somebody share the gospel with him. And I would imagine that that gave my son confidence that helped him to be like, you know what? This is a good thing. Somebody really had to stick their neck out there to share Jesus with me. What then? And in every way, whether pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. We can rejoice in that. That's a good thing. So for us, our, as a church, for our mission to thrive in the future, we need to be well-grounded in this theology of mission and to keep our eyes focused on what, what the advance of the gospel is. And it's easy when so much in the church world, there are different metrics or different success indicators that are, that are promoted that kind of can get into our minds like, oh, that's what the successful churches are doing. That's what the effective churches are doing. And to not let the, the gospel advancing be what determines our practice and determines our self-assessment as a church. 
Philippians 1 shows us that Paul doesn't define ministry success the way our modern churches do a lot of times. So for Paul, the gospel was on, on the advance, right? In Philippians 1, he sees the gospel as advancing. It's not on the retreat. Even though the advance of the gospel would not show up on any of our modern ministry stat sheets. Paul said his personal witness was that he, he had the opportunity to, to, to present the gospel to a new, new people. The whole imperial guard. So new, new places, he's able to preach the gospel. He does not give any indication of how, they, how receptive people were to it. Nevertheless, for Paul, that was the gospel advancing. And then other brothers, they're, they're getting more confident and bold and fearless in their, in their witness. Paul's imprisonment had emboldened them to share the gospel without fear. For Paul, that's the advance of the gospel. And then you have people that are proclaiming Christ with bad motives. Well, they're preaching the true gospel. The gospel's advancing, fine. I mean, it wouldn't be his preference but it's better than them not saying anything at all. So Paul's like, the gospel's advancing through people that enjoyed making Paul's life miserable while he's in prison. And then you have people that are preaching the gospel sincerely with good motives. The gospel is advancing there. So I mean, Christ the King Church, all of us, we agree with the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, this is the word of God, and we submit to God's word. We want to see the gospel advance. That's what I want. I'm sure that's what we all want. We want to see the gospel advance in our city, right? Amen? That's what we want to see. So we, what does that mean for us? What metric can we look to? It means like, well, we want to see more people proclaiming Christ. We want to see people sharing the gospel boldly, fearlessly, confidently. We want to see uh, people living 100% for Jesus. We do want to see more conversions. Yes. More baptisms. Yes. More new members. Yes. We want all of that. We want to see people growing and going. But that's not the only way that the gospel advances. Sometimes the gospel advances through setbacks and trials, and we need to be able to acknowledge that. Because if we can't acknowledge that, we'll be discouraged whenever bad times come. Perhaps the gospel will advance as we suffer for obeying Jesus. And that will inspire a next man up mentality where other people will fill the gap and say, hey, I want to be more bold and confident and fearless. Perhaps the gospel will advance by God testing us, pruning us, sharpening our focus, or more dialed in. Either way, however God sees fit, we'll keep our eyes on the ball and we'll pray and we'll work to advance the gospel. That's what we're about. So in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, whether in good times or bad, Christ is proclaimed. We can rejoice in that. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, that you've given us this ministry that we can share the gospel in a, in a, in a, in a world that is sinful and rebellious and broken and, and that sometimes that can, that can have ramifications and uh, fall out that we don't want to face. It's hard and we're, we could be afraid of it. We could be insecure sometimes. We could be timid. And Father, I pray that just as the early church brothers were emboldened and encouraged by Paul's suffering, may we do the same to see how the way they suffered in the early church and the way Christians have suffered all throughout the history of the church, you have used those stories to embolden your people. 
because you show and demonstrate in their suffering how much they value the gospel, how important it was that the gospel was proclaimed no matter what. So God, make us that sort of people. Lord, I pray that we will be so steadfast and rock solid and dialed in and committed and focused on proclaiming the gospel and advancing the gospel fearlessly, boldly, confidently, God, that, that we, will, we will be able to rejoice that the gospel is advancing regardless of the outcome. Lord, we pray, though, for an outcome. I pray, Lord, for more people to know Jesus. I pray for more people to be baptized, for more people to join the church and become members, for more people to be sent out into mission, more people to be living their lives and their vocations where they are with a purpose of proclaiming the gospel. Lord, forgive us of all the ways we fail to do that. Forgive us for our false motives or bad intentions in sharing the gospel. And thank you, Jesus, that your grace is sufficient even in our bad motives. Lord, that's our prayer. May the gospel advance in Cincinnati, in Christ the King Church, and in all the other churches in our city. May the gospel advance. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.